Heavenly Father, thank you for um, this time of the week, this week, where we gather together as your people um, before you, longing to hear what you have to say to us. Thank you for the way that your word, um, living and active, speaks to each of us in our different contexts and situations, the kind of weeks that we've had, the frustrations and the joys. So open our ears and soften our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, sometimes, sometimes I wonder about Rahab's backstory. How has she got to this point? We, we don't know much about her past. We don't know that much about her background. We know she has a family who live locally, mum and a dad, and some siblings, it seems, and they have households too. We don't hear anything about her kids, if she has any. We, we don't know what they make of her profession. We don't know how she ended up a prostitute, whether it was a choice or a necessity. We don't know how she was treated. We don't know what kind of prostitute she was. Maybe she was a a cultic prostitute, that is, someone involved in the worship of the Canaanite gods. Historians are pretty sure that was rife in the land at this point. More on that in weeks to come. Maybe she was more of a standard prostitute, as we would understand it today. We shouldn't perhaps make too much of this, but there was a Jewish historian called Josephus just after Jesus. He mentions that Rahab kept an inn. So maybe it was a bit more like a brothel where she was involved, where rooms could be rented out, where people could socialise. Perhaps she was kind of more powerful, higher up the ladder in terms of prostitutes. Sometimes I wonder about Rahab's backstory. We don't know. Whatever the story, we do know that she is a remarkably unlikely character to say something like she says in verse 8. She meets these two spies sent from Joshua. And then this conversation happens, 8 and 9. I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. Of all the people to say such a thing, of all the people to speak such truth, it's, it's Rahab. And I start here in verse 8 and 9 because these words, this little bit, seems to shape the rest of the chapter. Here is, if you like, the heart of the account, the heart of Joshua chapter 2. Actually, the spies say something very similar when you reach the end of the chapter, verse 24. They report back to Joshua. They say, the Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. So you see, it's good news. As the spies tentatively enter the land, they scope it all out. Rahab gives us our first point. And our first point is, our God keeps his promises. And I tell you that first because if we know our Old Testaments, we may have been getting a little twitchy as we reach Joshua chapter 2. I think there are loads of reasons why we might be twitchy. Here are just four of them. Four. The first one is that here are spies going into the land again. And we mentioned it last week. Do you remember Numbers 13? Remember how the story unfolded? Twelve spies into the land. The majority, majority opinion, extraordinary land, but enormous people. There is no way we can take them. It's never going to happen. There is no chance, ten of them said. Just the minority report, Joshua and Caleb said, well, maybe we should see this through the eyes of faith. 
Maybe we look at the Lord's promises rather than the problems that we see. So spies were thinking, not a great track record, a bit awkward. Second one, slightly more technical, and that is their base verse one in a place called Shittim. And we were there in the Numbers series as well this time last year, chapter 25, and it was there that the men indulged in sexual immorality and idolatry with the Moabite women. It was there that the Lord's fierce anger burnt burnt against them. It was there that he disciplined his people. Not great memories of that place. Second bit of twitchiness. The third one is just the mention of the name Jericho. You cross the Jordan and you you enter the uh, city of Jericho, a heavily fortified city. It's defended. The trained troops are there. They are ready to fight. It's not the ideal initial jaunt into the land. In at the deep end, really. In fact, in Numbers, where Jericho is mentioned nine times, it is always mentioned, something like this, on the plains of Moab, by the Jordan, opposite Jericho. Jericho is what they can see looming over them. Jericho is this obstacle they're going to have to deal with. Jericho is the proverbial elephant in the room. In fact, last week, we saw the Lord had promised the land to Joshua, but nothing on how to defeat Jericho. There's no kind of battle plan that comes to him. I take it that's presumably why, verse 1, the spies go straight into Jericho, taking particular note of it. And the fourth one, the fourth bit of twitchiness is an obvious one. But where do the spies go when they enter the land? When they enter Jericho, where do they go? What is their first port of call? They turn up at the prostitute's house. Their job is to check out the city. They're looking for information, and then it seems they want perhaps something a bit more than information. As they arrive at Jericho, they make a beeline for the brothel. What were they doing? Through all that before, there's no explicit condemnation in the text of it. Maybe Rahab did have an inn. Maybe this was the place to go for information. We're not quite sure, but I think we're meant to ask the question. What are they doing there? And yet verse 9, it's from the lips of Rahab that we find they are terrified the Lord has given the land to them. So how have we reached verse 8 and 9? What's the story? Well, it turns out the spies were spotted as they went in. They enter um, Jericho. The king hears that they have entered, and so he sends people to look for them. He hears of their entrance into Rahab's house, and he sends this contingent. Rahab, we don't know why at this point, but she hides them, and then she lies about it. She hides them up on the roof of the house, under the flax, a kind of thatched roof. And then she sends the soldiers on a wild goose chase out of the city somewhere else, into the countryside. And then just as the action seems to be getting going, the author seems to slow right down for us. We get to um, verse 8 to 14. It's almost as if he goes into slow-mo. This is real time. It's as if the story is going on hold. And, and particularly in the Old Testament, when that happens... When we get conversation happening, it's as if we're meant to prick up our ears and listen to what's going on. Here is the writer, here is the author saying, don't miss this. This is what it's all about. Wake up. This is vital stuff, he says to us. And here we hear of this unlikely faith of Rahab. And again, if you know how kind of Hebrew writing often works, the very center that the middle of the sort of sandwich construction they use, the chiasm it's called, This is the meat in the middle, verse 8 to 14. This is the bit that matters the most. This is the bit that counts. 
And surely not even the most crazily optimistic Israelites could have ever dreamt of this, could they? It's an extraordinary claim for Rahab to make. Why is there so much fear amongst the people of Canaan? I mean, think about it. You've got Jericho in one corner, garrison of soldiers, fully armed, trained, ready. They've got home advantage. They've got walls. They've got everything. And Israel in the other corner. Generation born in the wilderness. Ragtag bunch of motley nomads. Why are they so terrified? I take it here is Gideon again. Here is David and Goliath again. Here is Israel the underdog again. Why are they so fearful? Because God has already gone before them. And they have already heard the stories. In verse 10 you get two examples of the stories they've heard. You see we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. First one. And then secondly, what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. Their, their reputation precedes them. The Lord has gone before them. They've heard of Exodus 14. They've heard of the sea being parted. It looked like a dead end. But the Lord saw them through. They've heard of Numbers 21, Sion and Og. They um, blocked them on their way through to the Promised Land. They wouldn't let Israel pass. And so you see, for God's people on their way to the promised land, seas can be removed if needed. Cities can be removed if needed. They see who God is and what he has like. And that news has already reached their ears. They see that he is fiercely protective of his people and keeping his promises. And so they are terrified, verse 11. When we heard of it, our hearts sank because of you. They know that the people of God are unstoppable. And yet Rahab joins the dots even further. She concludes with this unlikely statement of her own faith. She seems to know that our God is not a tribal deity, a God who just has jurisdiction over certain places, certain bits of the world, but rather he is global. That seemed to be how the Canaanite religion works. You have gods for different bits. But she seems to know he is... End of verse 11. The Lord your God is in heaven above and on the earth below. He's the God of everywhere. And everywhere includes Jericho. There is nowhere where he is not God. And Rahab has grasped that. It strikes me that Rahab is an example, a great example of, of authentic faith. We'll see more in a bit. But just notice now, she's heard the reality of history. She's heard what God is like and what he has done. And she draws conclusions about who he is from his actions in history. Wouldn't that be a great prayer for us to pray for friends or family or neighbours or teammates or colleagues or whoever? Or even for our society more generally who, who perhaps we've spoken to about what God has done. And yet they try and deny it. Maybe people, they've heard the story of Jesus, yet they, they deny he even existed. Or if he did exist, they deny his life and miracles. Or if he did them, then they deny he died on the cross. Or if he died on the cross, they deny that he was resurrected again. Or if he did, then they deny that he's at work now or cares now. See, the Christian faith for many is frustratingly and annoyingly and maddeningly historical. People squirm to try and deny it. And yet Rahab here 
has heard the stories and joined the dots. And she has a faith. I think that's particularly true when it comes to the resurrection uh, in our society. That's something that people particularly try and deny or struggle with. They, a few examples. I think I've used this perhaps in an evening before here. But four examples of people who've tried to deny the resurrection. They've taken career breaks to do this. And then it's all gone wrong. So Dr. Simon Greenleaf. He was a Harvard Law School skeptic. He wrote three volumes on the laws of legal evidence. He mocked Christians in his law classes. And so Christian students challenged him to apply his own book and his own theories to the resurrection of Jesus. Ha-ha, he thinks. He takes a challenge. And he says the evidence is so convincing that he becomes a believer. Benjamin, Dr. Benjamin Gilbert West and Lord Littleton were from Cambridge, fed up with Christianity, wanted to destroy it. They, again, take a leave of absence to study the historical nature of the Christian faith, particularly the, the resurrection and particularly the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Ha-ha, they think. But again, they become ardent believers. They look into it and they see that it's real. There's a fourth guy, Frank Morrison, a lawyer and an engineer, brought up in a rationalistic background. He, he liked Jesus. He didn't like the resurrection. He thought it was a myth that had been sort of tacked on to the end. He wants to write a book to refute it. Ha-ha, he thinks. But he becomes convinced himself and ends up writing a book on the resurrection. People long to deny the historical evidence of our faith at every possible step. And yet here we have Rahab, who's heard the stories and joined the dots, received the same evidence as everybody else, and yet she acts upon that evidence, and even to the extent that she's willing to risk her own life, as we'll see, even to the extent that she's willing to change sides, as we'll see. She can see that God keeps his promises in providing the land for his people, and she trusts him. I guess, again, as Matthew was teaching the children, for for many this morning, that might be a real encouragement to hear because we're feeling wobbly or weak or unsure. And maybe to hear the fact that God is faithful and that he has promised that he will get you to be with him forever is what you need to hear. Do you know, you can trust him in that. He's not promised the physical here and now for us, of a land now, but we have a new heavens and a new earth to look forward to. And we will get there because of him and what he is like. Because Jesus historically died and was raised again. And all he says is, hold on to me, cling on to me. I am your Joshua, cling on to me. I've done it for you. He can't help but keep his promises to get you there. Paul puts it in Romans, he says, If God is for us, who can be against us? He, didn't, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? If, if God is so committed to getting his people to be with him that he will die in his son and be raised again, if he loved us so much, he will finish the job. And so he says, keep your eyes fixed on me, keep trusting, keep walking, keep going. Our God keeps his promises. Second one, though, is our God is kind to his enemies. Let me read again from verse 12 for us. 
See how the story continues for Rahab. She says, now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. He helps them leave and then picks up again verse 17. Now the men had said to her, this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down and unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into your house. If any of them go outside your house into the street, their blood will be on their own heads. We will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. But if you tell what we're doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. So you see what's going to happen. In the midst of the land being taken, a few chapters time, in the midst of the judgment of God against the Canaanites, we see kindness for those who hide themselves in him. Rahab was not alone in having heard about the actions of God. But she was alone in throwing herself upon this God. And his kindness. And so they make an oath. It's a language of covenant and faithfulness and kindness. It's the language of kind of covenants with the Lord. And they say, because you have protected us, so you and your family will be protected. If they are in the flat with you, number one. And if they tie the scarlet cord outside the window, number two. Because then the Israelite forces will know where she lives. And we'll keep them safe. Do you see that Rahab's is not the faith of demons? Hers is not simply knowing something to be true, knowing something about God to be true, but rather she acts upon it. And her obedience of acting upon it is the evidence here of her trust in the Lord. She obeys him. Now, you might know that Rahab later in the Bible is picked up as an example of faith. You get it in Hebrews 11 and James chapter 2 as well. Let me read them for us. Hebrews 11 and verse 31. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Or James 2 and verse 25. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off? in a different direction. Because she welcomed them, because she gave lodging to them, because she protected them, because her faith was active, so she was rescued. And there's a big question, what do we make of this scarlet cord? Many have said, ah, look, it's red. It's red like the blood of Jesus, it points ahead. Now I have to say, I'm unconvinced to tie that whole thinking around the colour of the cord matching the blood of Jesus. I think that's a little fanciful. But having said that, I am convinced that we're meant to tie it with the Passover in Exodus 12. Do you remember the Passover in Egypt? 
people of God were to quickly eat a meal, a lamb made with bitter herbs, and they were to put the blood of the lamb around the lintels of the door, and then they would end up leaving through that door as if the blood covered them and protected them and their family. The door was the way of escape. And sure, here we have got no lamb, there's no meal, there's no bitter herbs, there's no blood. But I wonder, as the family is gathered into the house together for safety during a time of judgment, as she marks her house out against all the others, just as at the Passover in Egypt, the, the lintels were daubed with blood, with red blood. So the scarlet cord that is hung is to be hung to protect them. And it is, it's linked with the blood guilt of the family, isn't it? Verse 18b, if they're not in the house, their blood will be on their own heads. We will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. And if the scarlet cord is not displayed, then Rahab's family's blood will be shed. If the scarlet cord is displayed, then their blood will not be shed. Here is the family covered by covenant. The family protected by a promise. And so you see, the writer wants us to see something of who Rahab is. She identifies herself and her family for protection and inclusion into the people of God, into the family of God. This unlikely Canaanite prostitute who has heard the news of the God of the heavens and the earth and she throws her lot in with him, she changes sides, she turns her back on her old identity into a new one. Here is Rahab throwing herself in with the Lord. And it must have seemed a bit weird, mustn't it? To, to tie a red cord in our window, that's what we have to do? Spies, is that going to be enough? Is that going to work? Are you, are you sure? Can we not make it a bit more kind of wise sounding? A bit more obvious? But all it did was to show her obedience and trust in the God who is kind to his enemies. And, and I take it there's a similar thing for us as well. We stand with Rahab, a simple trust and an obedient faith, as we hear the scorn in our sophisticated world of the things that we trust in. Sorry, you, you trust in this cross thing? We're mocked because we trust in a lamb who was slain. We, we're jeered at because we seek to keep trusting in the Easter story. We're prepared to be naive and simple and laughed at. And so we stand with Rahab, not trusting in a scarlet cord hang from our window, but an empty cross and an empty tomb and a risen saviour. And so the narrative unfolds in Joshua 2. The story continues. The spies head out into the hills for three days. The pursuers from Jericho miss them, and then they find their way back to Joshua again. And as we've said, the chapter finishes with good news. It's essentially that they seem to quote Rahab. Verse 24, the Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. What a contrast with the first set of spies who arrive back. This couldn't be more different. Trusting, confidence, optimistic. And so the chapter ends, and we'll be in chapters 3 and 4 next week to see the next instalment and how things unfold.
I guess at this point, we don't know whether she listens, although some of you have no doubt read ahead. In fact, in chapter 6, we find she does. Just so you sleep tonight, 6 verse 25, Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho and she lives among the Israelites to this day. And do you see why this story is so important for people like us? Why it is such good news? It's because we are Rahab. That naturally we are far from the Lord. Naturally, we are not a part of his people, but if his grace extends to enemies like her, then his grace extends to people like us. Maybe you're here today and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Maybe you're looking in on things. Maybe you're not quite sure where you stand. Maybe you're thinking, this is, this is so long ago and so far away, and, and thinking, what does this mean for me? What is this story about it's just weird. Well, friends, I want to say to you, as we read stories like this, we are Rahab. Because whatever our background, whatever is going on, we're meant to be Rahab. So we have heard the evidence of what God is like. We're meant to have the trusting, active faith where we act upon the stories. But more than that, if you think you're too far gone... If you think you have too much of a history, if you think God could never be interested in someone like you, or or if you think, what is there to love about me? Then look at Rahab and trust as Rahab did. And the thing I love about Rahab is that she pops up later in the Bible again, not just simply as examples of faith, but as part of the family tree of Jesus. And you get it implicitly in Ruth in a few pages' time, but you get it explicitly at the start of Matthew, in Matthew's Gospel. So let me read to us from Matthew chapter 1 and verse 2. And I know it sounds like a whole list of names, but there may be someone you recognise. Matthew writes, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah was the father of Perez and Terah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. What's she doing there? Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Do you see what Matthew's saying? He's saying, we're not just going to quietly smuggle Rahab in under the radar. She's not the embarrassing aunt that we avoid at family parties. Rahab is a trophy of grace. Because from her came Boaz, and then Obed, and Jesse, and King David, and finally from him came King Jesus. Do you get this? Jesus had prostitute blood in his veins. Jesus had prostitute blood in his veins. And Matthew wants us to see that. And he's not ashamed of that. Because he wants to show us Jesus' family tree. Why? 
so that we see the kind of family that Jesus comes to gather. So that we see the kind of people he comes for. The kind of people he would spend time with. The people he would be judged for as he spent time with them. People with a history. People who haven't got it all together. People who who have made mistakes. And people who make mistakes. Jesus came for unlikely people like Rahab. And he came for unlikely people like you and like me. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are blown away by the kind of God you are. We thank you that you you keep your promises to your people. We thank you that you are faithful and you are good and you are kind. But we thank you particularly that you are kind to your enemies, to the unlikely people. Thank you that you are kind to people like Rahab and you are kind to people like us. Father, make us, make us the kind of church where we are kind to unlikely people. Because that is the kind of God you are. In your son's name. Amen.